Okay, so I want to start off with an episode, a very interesting episode we find in the Talmud. Uh, we're talking about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka. We mentioned him last week. Um, uh, he was the rabbi of Jerusalem uh, when uh, he met Vespasian. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, more uh, today as well. Uh, so he's about to die. So the Talmud tells us what happens when the great rabbi is about to die. Uh, this is from the book of uh, Brachos. Brachos is the book of the Talmud, the very first book of the Talmud. It talks about Brachos. Brachos means blessings. So if you wanted to know the Torahitic laws of blessings, uh, the different kinds of blessings you ate before and after meals, uh, various laws of prayers and the Shema, you would go to the book of Brachos. In it, we find a uh, narrative about Rabbi Yochanan of Zakai on his deathbed. And what happens? His students come in to visit him. Rabbi's about to die. He's on his deathbed. His students come. And he sees them and he starts crying. That's great. And whenever you see a man of uh, uh, dominated by intelligence crying, right, being motivated by emotion, it always raises a question. Always, you see the great rabbi, and he's he's crying. What's he crying for? So what do they say? They say to him, "Wait a minute, uh, our teacher, you know, why are you crying?" He said as follows: Listen to this, guys. He says, "Imagine." They were bringing me in front of a king of flesh and blood, a human king. And a human king doesn't last forever, right? He's here today, and he's gone tomorrow, right? We have the term limits. And if he gets mad at me, he's angry at me, his anger has limits, doesn't last forever. And if he uh, uh, banishes me, it's not an eternal banishment. And if he kills me, it's not an eternal death. And I could bribe him, and I could cajole him, and I could talk to him. Still, I'll be terrified. Imagine they're taking you down, and you're going to have to argue for your life in front of a king. Who wouldn't be terrified? Who wouldn't be crying? Who would be shaking in their pants? But what's the problem? Here's the king. Negotiate with him. <laughs> you could talk to him. He's a human. He's fallible, like any one of us. But still, we're scared. Now, continues Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. they're bringing me in front of the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who exists forever. And if he gets angry at me, his anger lasts forever. And if he banishes me, he banishes me forever. If he kills me, I'm God forever. And I can't negotiate with him. I can't bribe him. It doesn't work. There's no way to bribe God. And I can't um, convince him in any way. And not only that, there's two paths in front of me, one for Gan Eden and one for Gehenim, and I don't know which one I'm going to, and I'm not going to cry. What's his rationale for his cry? And there's a postscript to the story. That's item number one. Item number two continues the Talmud, Talmud's narrative. So they say to him, uh, teacher, give us a blessing. Give us a blessing. You're about to die. Give us a blessing. What does he say? Yehi ratzon, it should be the will of God that the fear of heaven... Your fear of heaven should be like your fear of men. Did the rabbi lose it? <laughs> my fear of heaven, my fear of God should be like my fear of men? Didn't you just say that we should be more fear, fearful? What does that mean? So they say to him, they say to him, students, uh, that just, we, we should just be as fearful of God as we are of man? So he says to them, if only... You guys would be as fearful of heaven as you are of man, because what happens when someone's about to sin? He lets Rabbi Chanel was watching and he sins. Thus concludes the narrative. And I like to present this as really a continuation of what we, we were speaking about last week. We're talking about faith. And faith, it's a topic that our society has opted to not really delve into it deeply. You know, uh, We want our politicians to be men of faith. We don't want them to explain too much about their theology, about their position, right? Uh, in this, uh, you know, in this discussion, in this dialogue, we want to really understand what does it mean, emuna. What does the Almighty want of us? Like, what are the responsibilities? What, what exactly does it mean that we have to have faith? Here we see an episode of faith. We see him living his life in a way that was—it's real. It parallels the real world. What we what we consider the real world to us. We see a king, we're terrified. 
right? We see God, we're not so terrified. What, what happens with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? What does he see? He's about to see God. He's about to be uh, uh, in judgment in front of the Almighty. And he's terrified, just like we would be if we're going to a human team. In his perception, right, being encountered with divine justice is as terrifying, even more terrifying than, uh, than, than facing the wrath of a mortal king. And then he continues, he tells him, listen, this is me. I'm the teacher here. And my reality of God is much, I'm much more terrified of God than I am, I would be of a mortal king. So what, so what, but what do I bless you students? That you should fear heaven as much as you fear fellow men. All I'm demanding of my students is that at least there should be parity between their fear of heaven and the fear of man. Be as fearful as heaven as you are of men. Make the reality, the spiritual reality of your relationship with God, that to be as real as your relationship with other people. And what happens? What happens? And they're saying, "Wait, wait, that's what that, that that's what you want? No more?" He says, "Yeah. What happens when someone sins? What do they do? Look left. No one's watching. Look right. No one's watching. Right. Wait a minute. Isn't God watching? Of course, God's watching. It's just that reality is on a lower level, unfortunately." What he's telling us is a dramatic change that could potentially happen. It means this is relevant to us as well. But there is this possibility of making the existence of God an entity, a reality that parallels the existence of our fellow man, of everything we see, everything we encounter with our physical senses. And I want to tell you guys, you think that, okay, well, Rabbi Yochum Zakai, he lived in the first century of the Common Era, and based upon the principle of Yerata Zerot, that there is a, 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 um, a dramatic and progressive uh, degradation of the status, the spiritual status of man, right? The further we get away from Sinai, the further we are from Moses and the great prophets, we can't have prophets anymore, right? There's a, there is a regression, a spiritual regression. So what about us? Like, how, how, how can we today, living in America, living in contemporary times, um, how can we even uh, imagine or hope to have uh, a level of faith where it's actually real. So I want to tell you guys a story. I don't, I don't, know if, I don't think I mentioned this last week. Um, <clears throat> my grandfather, of blessed memory, when he was 90 years old, uh, he was quite sick. And for the last half a year of his life, uh, we had a rotation. All the grandkids lived in Israel at the time. I was there in Israel at the time. We had a rotation of someone to spend the night with the grandfather. Why? Because otherwise my grandmother, Nebuch, she would have to be up the whole night tending to him. Because he was in a lot of pain, he was in discomfort, and he had to, you know. So every night, a different grandchild came and filled in in the rotation. And one night, it was yours truly's responsibility. And I was there, and I happened to have gone to, uh, my grandfather had the, um, kind of like a, this is a reference that none of you guys will get, but there was a forbidden section in the library with all the advanced books, and I was like going through like stuff because I was like I was gonna stay up the whole night, and I, you know what's there to do in my grandfather's house? A tiny little apartment, middle of nowhere, uh, with just books. That's all there is, right? Uh, so I was going through reading a lot of interesting stuff. Either way, it was like two in the morning, uh, and my grandfather wakes up, wakes up, and he was uncomfortable, and he says, "Is it time? Is it time to daven shachos? It's time to pray." I said, no, it's time to go back to sleep. We still have five hours to pray. Half hour later, he wakes up again. It's the time to pray. I'm ready. I'm ready to pray. He gets, starts getting up out of bed, right? He's old. He, I'm ready. I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to get ready to pray. I said, Saba, it, you have f- four and a half hours. Go back to sleep. What's going to be? Half hour later, he's up again. And this time, he says, I'm insisting. I'm getting up. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to have And he, when he went to his, he had a bench. Right? And he sat, he got, got dressed, washed his hands, and sat like this. I'm waiting. And he was sitting there for like an hour, just waiting. And then he was so overcome with exhaustion, he actually fell asleep. And he, ironically, he actually missed the prayers that happened at 7. 
That's the postscript to the story. But to me, like this was an eye-opening experience. Because he was like a kid who's about to go to Disneyland. Can't sleep the night before. That's what he was like. Because to him, prayer was really talking to God. If you knew you're talking to God tomorrow morning, you're going to be able to sleep tonight? If you're talking to the president tomorrow at 7, you wouldn't wake up at, at, at 2 and say, oh, I have two jury, I can't go to sleep? Well, no, <laughs> he's a lame duck, right? Maybe another one. Just a general example. Maybe next. Maybe the next one. No, but, but to me, like, this is an experience in 2005. This is in Israel. It's not in the United States. But this is an experience that I myself saw. I saw a man who, talking to Hashem, praying, was really talking to God. And that was manifest in his behavior. And he couldn't contain himself. I, want, I can't fall asleep. I'm, I'm, I'm too excited about, about the experience I'm going to have in something. He's 90 years old. He's been praying every day for decades. But maybe talking to God doesn't really get old. Doesn't get old. You're, you're talking to God. That doesn't get old. You don't get burnt out of that. You know, just, my grandfather would always pray at Mincha. So Mincha is the afternoon prayer. There's a flexibility when you can pray. There's the early Mincha, there's a late Mincha. Uh, if you go to the synagogue here, um, uh, at Yad Yisrael, even at, at Meir Luminion, so they have a Mincha and a Meir back-to-back. Right? Meir, you have to pray at night. Mincha, you have to pray in the afternoon. The afternoon starts at 12 and ends at 6, or whatever, right? So, what? for the sake of convenience, we have back-to-back, right? Wash left of the shul twice, right? Let's try, let's try to kill two birds with one stone, right? <laughs> so let's have Mincha all the way at the end of the available time. And it might have right at the beginning of the available time. Guilty boards were washed schlep to shul twice, right? That's the American attitude. My grandfather, every day of his life, he prayed mincha the earliest possible. To him, it was unthinkable to go from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and not talk to God if you have an opportunity. So even if the yeshiva, right, where he, uh, the, the, that he headed, had the prayers later, he himself would pray earlier. This, 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 was, this was lifeblood for him. So, you know, I just want to dispel any, any misunderstandings or misconceptions that such a, you know, such a, uh, a stance or such a status in faith is beyond us. Um, I'll give you another example from the Talmud just to throw you guys another curveball. Uh, we have the story of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is uh, under the terrible, brutal, and cruel uh, rule of the Emperor Hadrian. And he tells him he can't study Torah. Whoever studies Torah is going to get executed. Whoever is a child of Bris is going to get executed. Mom and child, whoever observes the Shabbat or the laws of Nida, gets executed. Really, really um, restrictive <laughs> uh, rules. For, uh, for a Jewish community. And Rabbi Tiva is caught teaching Torah publicly and is being executed, being tortured in a terribly graphic and gruesome way. And there too, the Talmud tells that his students come over to him and they, they're talking to him. And he's saying the Shema. And the students say to him, this is what you're doing right now, you're about to die, you're saying the Shema. They say, he says, he responds, every day of my life, I said, you should love Hashem, right? with all your hearts, with all your soul. What does that mean? How do you love Hashem with your, with your life? That means even if God takes away your life, your love of God transcends your love of your own life. And therefore, if God takes, if, if there's a conflict between God and your own life, well, then you give up your life. And every day, says Rabbi Kiva, I read that and I was wishing and hoping and yearning, when will I finally have this opportunity to, to fulfill this? So now, when I finally have the opportunity, I'm not going to say the Shema. Now I'm actually doing it. Now's the time to say the Shema. 
when we learn the laws of the three cardinal sins we have to give up our lives for, to us, this is like worst-case scenario, you know? The Gentile comes and says, hey, commit idolatry or I shoot you dead. Unfortunately, you have to give up your life by Jewish law. Or you kill that guy or else I kill you. Or you rape that person or else I kill you. Well, these sins are too bad. Or, you know, commit the idolatry or else I kill you, right? The, you know, these are the terrible sins you've got to give up our lives for. But for us, this, would, this is suboptimal. We would have rather had to avoid that. And says Rabbi every day of his life, he's saying, when can I finally fulfill this? He's hoping to actually have the opportunity to demonstrate that his love of God transcends his love of body. Now, why for us is it suboptimal? And Rabbi Kiva every day is hoping for it. The answer is for us, we really love our body more than we love God. So therefore, we don't want to have to have this conflict because we'll have to give up on our body, which we like more. Rabbi Kiva really, every day, he was hoping to have an opportunity to demonstrate his faith to actualize what he believed. Pretty incredible. Now, we talk about these high levels of faith. This, obviously, as is evidently clear, that there's many, many different uh, uh, stages of of our growth, and I'm going to go through and recap everything as well today, hopefully. Uh, But... This kind of faith, by the way, leads a person straight away to prophecy. How do you get prophecy? How does that work? What does someone do to get prophecy? We want to become prophets. Well, what would we do? Imagine there's a, we're living in a time where prophecy is somewhat common. And uh, the prophet Samuel's around, or the prophet, uh, I don't know, Ezra's around, or Joshua, or right? a lot of prophets in Jewish history. What do you do? Like, is it one day you wake up in the morning? Oh, I had a vision of the middle of the night. Just poof, out of the blue, you get you prophecy. How does it work? What is prophecy? What is prophecy and how do we get it? We need the quick idiot's guide to prophecy. Prophecy for dummies. What is prophecy? What is it? How do you get prophecy? Anyone know? It, it's, such, it's such a... God tells you. What does that mean? God's telling you what's going. But what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Well, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, what are the nuts and bolts of prophecy, and what can I do to get it? Not me necessarily, but what does a human do? Like, what did Moses do to get prophecy? Moses was a great guy, you know, but he was. Did he study Torah? I don't know. He didn't have Torah, right? Or maybe he did have Torah. Abraham had Torah, right? We know that, Dave. Um, Abraham had Torah before Torah was given, so maybe Moses had as well. But uh, simply, we understand that Moses gave us a Torah. See, you know, so he got the Torah with with us. So, okay. So being so so okay. So 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 you're saying it's being humble. You submit yourself to God. Okay, so we submit ourselves to God and we get prophecy? God chooses you. God chooses you? Well, if God chooses you, then it's just random? How does God choose who to choose? God doesn't... Well, we're a chosen nation, so are we all essentially potential prophets? Maybe? Isn't it about connection to the rabbi? It's about an intense connection. But how do you get it... I guess you have to be a Okay. You have to live your life always thinking about how you're going to connect with God. I mean, you have to be like, you know. How how do you connect with God? Is there like a a plug that we connect with God? How does this work? I'm saying prophecy is such a core element of our religion. If you were to count the 13 principles of faith of Maimonides, five of them are about what we understand of God. Four of them is what we understand of prophecy, and four of them is what we understand of reward and punishment. Right? So four out of 13 talk about prophecy. Prophecy is everything. Like our, we believe Moshe gave us the Torah because we, and we knew it's from God because we know he's a prophet. Prophecy, prophets are the, the leaders of the religion. Our entire Bible is 
the works of prophets. What made someone a prophet? Samuel got lucky. He won the spiritual lottery. Scratch off. I think you have to love God at all times. You got to love God. You got to love God. You got to, that's all you think about is my love of God, my love of God, my love of God. Constant. Okay. It's constant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I have kind of a detailed answer to this. But Go ahead. That makes sense to me. God speaks to his chronicle sinner. We have the receiver. Our soul, our, our conscience, whatever you want to call it. Okay. It's there all the time. We maintain that receiver. We maintain it in good condition, or we don't maintain it in good condition. Sometimes we turn the darn thing off and don't listen at all. But the word is there all the time if we choose to listen and to maintain it. And to me, the way of maintaining it is to seek, to feel it, to feel it, to set it up. By doing those three things, we keep feeding it, the, the receiver and Okay, so so okay, do we hear what's being presented here? This is a dramatically different idea. This is that. I, 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 okay, now I'm I'm gonna say something kind of similar, uh, but more details. Um, what, I was trying to hold it back and make you. No, go ahead. No, this is this is a dynamic discussion, guys. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm jet lagged. I need you guys to pick up the. You have to want it. No, it's not. What he's saying is, it's not, it's not like isolated, isolated episodes of prophecy. It's prophecy is essentially. It's not. It's not God is withholding. It's that on the receiver end. This is a dramatically different. It's not like oh, God decides to give someone a prophecy, but God decided to not give me anything. No, maybe God is giving me prophecy. It just I have no tools to accept it. To decipher it. But could one of those missing tools be the fact that you don't want it enough? Maybe there's not enough desire don't for it? For the connection. I don't think it's in the real time. I think it's in the preparation. That you prepare yourself on a continuous basis so that okay, so, it can come through to you so, when you need it. Okay, so let's, let's, let's make it clear. We cannot achieve prophecy anymore. That's absolutely abundantly clear. The last prophets we've had are uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, Malachi, whatever you want to call them, whatever you call them, we don't have any of prophets. And it's clear, the Talmud makes it clear that even the great sages, Rabbi Kiva, Yochum and Zach, all the people speaking about today, people spoke about last week with Shemim Barichai, they never had prophecy and they couldn't get there. That could be either because, like we said, the degradation of the generations, or, uh, and therefore the individuals are incapable of prophecy, or the society is not capable of prophecy. So even if the individual, perhaps in a different society, would be capable of prophecy, but the uh, the the society as a whole is not capable of prophecy. Either way, prophecy today is not possible. But how how, how did it work? So this is interesting. We, you know, God is ever present. Uh, there's no there's no void. Um, at least um, there's no there's no void. Uh, in the world where his presence cannot potentially be felt. Uh, the problem is, is that our body, our physical reality, has absolutely no interface, cannot possibly have any sort of connection with God. It's not possible. They're opposites. Our body is entirely physical. God's entirely spiritual. They, The two shall not meet. However... We have a soul, and our soul is keenly designed on an entirely different dimension, an entirely different realm, and thus is capable of being a receptacle of prophecy. So essentially, like you said, we have sensors or antenna, like to call them, that perfectly attuned to prophecy. What's the problem? The problem is that... We have no interface with our soul because our soul is buried deep, deep, deep within ourselves, within our body, so to speak. It's submerged in a body. So you take your uh, antenna, and uh, it has to be finely tuned antenna, but you put it in a metal box, and you put the metal box in another metal box, and you put another 100 million metal boxes in it, it's not going to be able to pick up any signals from the outside. So the way someone gets prophecy is not by 
you know, having God bolt him uh, some sort of lesson, some sort of insight, it's rather, it's an eternal work, where if you remove the influence of the body, you expose the antenna that's already there, and therefore, you're able to pick up the signals. I'm sorry? Yeah, so, okay, so that, that's the process. That's true. I, I, I didn't disagree with you. That, the pro, that, that, that was one of the, pro, one of the processes. I'll tell you even, even more now that you suspect that I didn't agree with what you said. The Talmud says in the book of Nedarim that the only person that can have prophecy is someone who's wealthy, who's physically strong, and who's very intelligent. Which doesn't sound right. You have to be wealthy. Why should you have to be wealthy? Why should you have to be physically strong to be a prophet? Why should you have to be uh, intelligent to be a prophet? You have to be pious. That should be the only thing that matters. The answer is because really prophecy depends upon humility. And if someone is not physically strong, not mentally strong, and not materially strong, well, of course they should be humble because they have nothing potentially to be prideful of. So I agree with you. But the process means the mechanics of how it works is where man changes himself from being a physically, dominantly physical entity to a dominantly spiritual entity, and thus his reality can now have some sort of interface with God. Rabbi, I have a question then, though. Why is it impossible for that to happen now? Do we not have... Surely there must be people that that are pious enough and devoted enough and have enough faith to be able to, to achieve that. But you said a few minutes ago, which you know is not the first time I've heard this, that it's you know prophecy ended and there's no more prophecy and it's not going to happen. Why is that? I mean, yeah, so, 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 so that, like I said, there's, there's two potential answers. Either it, it's because, yes, we can have very pious people, but our souls, remember this, if every successive generation, it's weaker souls, and you might have antennas, but the antennas are kind of like we used to do with the televisions. You have to stick yeah. the hanger in. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And you stick the hanger and you move it like that until you get a signal. Yeah. If it's weak antennas, you know, then it can't really – it can have some sort of maybe what's called Ruach HaKodesh or Baskol. There's other lower levels of prophecy mm-hmm. uh, that the Talmud ta- talks about, like uh, that has a coal. There's a coal means a sound. means a voice. That already the – Talmud, the Talmud, they talk about that. Batkol, which means like a sub-voice. Ruach HaKodesh was called the uh, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit, which that sounds weird. It's an inspiration. It's, it's a very, it's a lower level of prophecy that we've ha- we can still have today. We can still have today. Um, so yes, I'm not saying that we cannot have it. It's just that prophecy as in, we'll see a little bit more about how prophecy works, but direct communication with God, that's not possible. And I would say either because we have the weaker weaker antennas, Right, we got a lower frequency or whatever, lower voltage or amperage or whatever. Uh, uh, either that's one, or because of our society, which means that a prophet is also a boon to the society, right? When you were a prophet, like Maimonides talks about how 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 Maimonides explains how uh, a prophet would be the destination for everything. You know, if you lost your iPhone, you would go to the prophet. Really, that's what people would do. Saul goes to Samuel because Saul lost his donkeys and Samuel tells Saul, oh, by the way, you're the first king of Israel. Congratulations. Do a good job. Which he didn't. But what? You know? <laughs> that's, what pro- that's what prophets were. So therefore, if the society is not one that's collectively worthy of having a prophet, even the individual is fantastic, um, he, he won't be granted that level of prophecy. So, so either way, I think uh, today what's clear is that we can't have, have the highest levels of prophecy. So didn't prophecy end during the destruction of the Second Temple? Era? No, no, even earlier. Right at the beginning of the Second Temple era. When, we, when there was no, the whole people that left Israel? Oh, the people already come back. Ezra came back. Okay. Ezra was a prophet. Uh, he came back. Um, so the Temple, beginning of the Second Commonwealth. So the vast majority of Jews were still in, were still in Babylon from the first mm-hmm. uh, exile. But some Jews came back with Ezra and rebuilt the temple. Um, and, but then prophecy was very petering out. Everyone saw it was, it was weakening. And Moanis tells us that there's various degrees of prophecy. Of prophecy. Thus, everyone saw that the end was near. And that's why the Men of the Great Assembly is essentially a, uh, a, a group, a society, 
Let's society is a weak word, but it's it's a it was an assembly uh, of the Sanhedrin to try to create a Judaism that will survive despite prophecy ending, despite the temple being greatly reduced, despite the fact that the Jews are now living in multiple places. Jews are suddenly spread out throughout the world. You know, you have the majority of Jews living in Babylon. What do you do? What happens on the, te- on the holidays? What happens? What happens with laws? There's certain restrictions upon what courts can do outside of Israel. Do you know that? What, how, who, who determines this new reality? So that's what the men of the Great Assembly, under the leadership of Ezra, uh, they, they're the ones who formalized prayers, they formalized, they canonized the books of the Torah, what goes in, what goes out. Um, that's why, by the way, the book of Esther is the last one to be included. Because Esther uh, happened at the tail end of that 70-year period between the First and Second Temple. Uh, thus, it was the last to be included. Anything that came post, post it uh, was not included in, in the canon because the canon was sealed. And then during the time of the Second Temple, we also had the problem of baseless hatred. So maybe I mean, that was a further degradation of society. Yeah, well, once, once there's no prophets, it opens the door to all oh, kinds okay. of heresy. All right. So it's not the other so, way around. That, that's the way. Well, I'm saying I'm of that, we're going to have a lot of discussion about this when we talk about history. Okay, uh, but it's a good question. It means what leads to what, as we could debate. But either way, there's no prophecy, and suddenly anyone who wants to reject the very framework of our religion can do so without being, you know, totally uh, uh, quelched and squelched and quelled by a prophet who's demonstrated prophecy. Like Ramani talks about how many times you test a prophet. The, when you actually vet a prophet in the Jewish method, they're a prophet. Everyone knows that. It's undeniable. They prove themselves again and again and again countless times. Uh, you don't want to mess around uh, in such a world. Either way, guys, what happens when someone gets prophecy? Just to, just to recap this. Essentially, the process that we're talking about of faith where you are aligning your reality with the spirit, you're changing, so to speak, from, from being a predominantly physical-oriented reality to a spiritual, well, what does that do? That brings to prophecy, right? That's the, that's the journey to prophecy. And by the way, what's olam haba? Olam haba, the world to come. What, 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 what happens to the world to come? Anyone knows what happens to the world to come? So we find some descriptions in the, in, in the Talmud, in the Torah. We find, for example, the statement uh, in the book of Brachos, same book, uh, this time not from 28b, this is from 17a. Olam there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no sleeping. What does that sound like? Sounds like nobody. Nobody. Well, I don't know if you're dead. No, because it's you're more alive than you are today, but not in the, not with the same uh, paradigm. It's a different paradigm. Even if there was a, a reconse- even if there was a reconstruction, oh yeah, but the, have no physical needs. Exactly. Uh, so, what does that mean? You may have a body and a soul. It's just that the roles are reversed. Now it's not body dominant. Body's the host, and the soul is submerged within it. It's the opposite. The soul is dominant. The body is just here, maybe hold things together. You know, the body is just a form, but it's not at all a factor in determining perception. So would that be about to be a prophet thing? Well, it's it wouldn't be prophecy. It means it, it wouldn't be called prophecy. It wouldn't be it, w- it wouldn't be dramatic in any way because that is the reality. To us, it's, it's you know, to us, prophecy is something novel. Because prophecy underscores a certain change that happened to the prophet. They began their life as a soul buried deep within a body. And they were able, through working on their humility, through sub, uh, uh, subjugating their body, uh, through um, uh, empowering their soul, to expose the soul and have those antenna uh, be receptive to what's already there. Uh, so that's why it's a remarkable thing. But if you start off your life, if you start off your existence, you know, a soul, if you were to isolate a soul before it's ever put into a body, would the soul have any hard time getting prophecy? Well, no. In fact, 
we find, the Talmud tells us of prophecies that every soul has. So we're all prophets. Look at you. Everyone here has got a soul, right? So we're all prophets. Really? No. Because that's a soul, right? Uninhibited by a body. Of course a soul has prophecy without a body. No big deal. The big deal is where you are a soul, but you're submerged, you're, you're buried deep within a body, which is antithetical to prophecy, and you are able to overcome via your free will and subjugate your body to your soul, and suddenly your soul is dominant, you switched the realities, and then you're able to receive prophecy. Well, that's a dramatic thing. And what does it tell us? It tells us that a prophet is someone who is able to, in this world, live like in the next world. The way everyone's going to exist in the next world, where, where the body is, if, it, if there is a body, it's, it's not at all a dominant factor compared to the soul. Right? That reality that everyone has in the world to come, a prophet has in this world. That's why it's dramatic, and that's why it's an accomplishment. Are all the prophets so holy, or are some of them much more of a human than, than many other people? Oh, so Maimonides tells us there's 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 tons and tons of levels of prophecy. And who's the who's the highest level of prophecy? Who's the Moses? Well. Well, let, 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 let's examine some sources here. Okay, well, he's human because he still has got a body. By definition, body and soul means human. Uh, as to what the breakdown of influence, body versus soul, he was almost entirely soul, I would say. Maybe even entirely soul. Uh, Booyah. There you go. Do you remember that? That's in the Torah. It says it multiple times. Moshe didn't eat. How does someone not eat or drink? How is it possible? Forty days it goes without eating or drinking. How is that possible? Motion, motion was human. Yes. Could you live without food and water for forty days? No. Yes. So Torah, Torah says it multiple times. Says it. I think multiple times. Moshe tells him, "When I was up in the mountain, I did not eat. I did not drink. Forty days. How is it possible that I eat? You know what? Well, we saw that." A man in Olam Abba doesn't eat, doesn't drink. We just read that. That's the Talmud. It's very clear. Yeah. Well, how is it possible? Of God when he was on Sinai. Yeah, but he's, he's still, he is what he is, and he is someone who was able to be 100% Olam Abba in this world. Thus, he doesn't eat, eat, drink. I'll tell you more. We know that Moshe time-traveled. You guys know that? How do you time travel? Well, first of all, where is that? Where is that source? Yeah, so <laughs> well, he didn't. Well, so what he saw in the land. Well, okay, you guys are all talking about it. Like, yeah, in the crack. Well, that that wasn't time travel. This is I don't know exactly what that was, uh, but um, we find in the Talmud that Moshe was privy to a discussion of Rabbi Akiva and his students. Rabbi Akiva came 13 years later. Um, well, I don't want to go too deeply into that particular episode. Um, it's from the book of Menachos 30, uh, 29b. If you can read the story, it'll be, eyeballs will probably fall out, so be careful. Um, it's an incredible, incredible narrative. But either way, Moshe says, how do you time travel? Aren't we limited to time? We are, you know, that's the that's the that's the material physical reality that we that we live in. <coughs> Moshe is able to time. How does he do that? Well, he has a different reality. Uh, not only that, do we know that Moshe had to wear a mask yeah. his whole life? Yeah. Do you know why to wear a mask? Why have to wear a mask? His face, his face was like the sun. The, the Thomas says the pnei Moshe pnei Moshe's face was like the face of the sun. Try looking at the sun. How long can you get to look at the sun? You can't do it. Why would Moshe's face like the sun? He had absolutely no more boxes, no more metal boxes covering his antenna. All he had was soul. And what happens? We have no interface with our soul. Our physical eyes are limited to seeing physical things. The soul, the, the sun is an example of something that transcends that. I'm not trying to say that the sun is spiritual, even though I would make that argument as well uh, for a separate time. 
But the Talmud makes it clear in many different examples and even verses that talk about the sun being representative of Olam Abba because it's beyond our physical tools of uh, engagement. We can't engage with the sun. So what happens? Moshe, he's suddenly a soul. You're looking at the soul. You can't look at the soul. There's no, there's no interface that our physical reality can have with Moshe's spiritual reality. He doesn't have any more barriers. You've got to put a new barrier. You've got to put an artificial mask. He's sinning, and in fact, the rabbis say it's because of that. He doesn't get to go into Israel. So, and he's pure spiritual. It almost makes it sound like he's incapable of sinning. Is that what you're implying? Okay, so um, that's a that's an amazing question, and I'm implying anything. <laughs> uh, so it's a, I want to address that question. Uh, so clearly, uh, he is capable of, of sinning. So he's, um, uh, by the fact that he still has the effect of a body, um, so, so there's, you know, there's still something about, well, what was his sin? Do you remember what the post yeah. was? What, what the, how did God, twice, uh, the ones in the book, uh, I'm sorry? God told him to speak to the rock, right? And he That's said, right. God upset me in the world. Twice. Twice the Torah describes his sin very uh, bizarrely. Do you know how it describes his sin? Okay, so it says, Yan Loe God tells him, he doesn't tell just Moses, he tells Moses and Aaron uh, that you don't have, but the reason why you're going to get punished because you don't have faith in me. Yeah. Do you really think Moshe didn't have faith in God? Um, do you know what, Rabbi? Maybe he was so affected by his surroundings at that moment. Right? Come by on, Moshe is affected by his surroundings? Well, by the people who were putting pressure on him, and maybe, you know, at that moment was just so affected by what was going on around him that maybe that was what caused him to sin. Because surely he was somebody who had plenty of faith. So clearly, but clearly to say that Moshe didn't have faith is insane. Mm-hmm. It's insane, but the Torah says it twice. So what does it mean? It means that Moshe is judged on his level. If, let me ask you a question. If I'm able to take a rock in front of a nation of millions, strike the rock, talk, doesn't matter, talk to the rock, strike the rock, whatever I do, and I extract enough water to, uh, to drink a thousand uh, people, more, more even a million people. Would that be, would that encourage faith or diminish faith, in your opinion? Uh, if you do it with no credit to God, uh, I do. Have, well, well, God. certainly, 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 Moshe even even mentioned that well, God will bring out water from I the mean, rock. Isn't it possible Moses confused because? First time that he got water from the rock, God told him. To well, that that that's true. So, so I wanted to say Moshe, Moshe was confused. I'm not going to say that about Moshe, but simply, I mean, there's a good argument to be made that part of the test that the Almighty set for Moshe was the fact that the previous time God had told him to strike the rock, and this time He told him to talk to the rock, but He also told him to take your staff. So He kind of led him to believe that uh, that you're going to use your staff for something. Uh, now, but also the first time he says that God told him to do it, he acknowledges God in the act. Oh yeah, so he doesn't acknowledge God the second time. He really does. Well, he, he, he gives okay. Well, well, we we, we have to understand that Moshe is judged in his own. This is, this is the most important thing. Moshe for sure had faith. There was never Moshe had faith. Yeah. Okay. The Torah says he didn't have faith. The Torah is judging him at his level. Moshe, at his level, his free will. Where, where is the free will of Moshe? Did he lose the capacity for free will? No. He still had some free will. Where was his realms of free will? Was it to sin? Certainly not. Right? To have a sin, to start, to, to, to I don't know, to, to light a fire on Shabbos. That's not Moshe's test. Maybe that's our test. That's not Moshe's test. Moshe's test is to either do the most wonderful miracle the world has ever seen and extract water from the rock by striking it and inspire faith amongst millions for eternity or to do the same but to, to not even touch the rock, to just strike it. 
So it's slightly more inspiration. That's, that's his test. And he failed in the test, and Torah to clear. But the Torah is so strict with Moshe that even though his act was an act that inspired faith for mil- in millions for eternity, that he actually extracted enough water from a rock by merely striking it, right? enough to give water uh, for a nation of millions, but because it could have been slightly more impressive and it encouraged slightly more faith for Moshe at his level, that's as if he rejected faith entirely. The Torah says, you don't have faith in God. It's very important to us to realize, yes, Moshe was still capable of free will, but where was, it? where was the realms of free will? It was on high levels that we can never... For us, in our wildest dreams, we can never do a mitzvah that was Moshe's sin. Does that make sense? And I mean, we'll talk about this some other time, a little more great detail. But there's the idea of as someone progresses, their free will choices get higher and higher. Rabbi, I got a Go ahead. Question. Go ahead. No, maybe I'm wrong, but do you believe that the re- one of the reasons why Moshe wasn't allowed to go to the Promised Land was they didn't want him to become an idol? Is that possible there also? Uh, well. Well, it, it doesn't seem like that was a concern because the Torah makes it clear why he didn't he didn't want to go. Because that's why we don't know where he's buried. That's uh, maybe that's why we don't, we don't know why he why he's buried. But it, it seems like from from various Jewish sources that had Moshe gone into the land of Israel, uh, the idea of such a man in the land of Israel, the marriage of of this dramatic personality, right, in the land of Israel, that would have entirely changed. Uh, all of human history, uh, post you know going forward. So therefore, uh, it wasn't just you know Moshe going to the land of Israel and just you know doing the message of the land of Israel. It was more like, well, what would the Jewish people look like had they had the opportunity to have the holiest man in the holiest place? What would that look like? You know, and what kind of uh, future history would that engender? So yes, I. I, I I don't. I don't think that was, it was. It was limited to the fact that Moshe would be deified, which I don't think would have happened. The Torah declared that Moshe was a human, and everyone knew he was human, even though he was human. He had to wear a mask to cover up his uh, sun-like <coughs> glow. Either way, I want to just give a little bit more here, more details about Moshe to kind of just hammer home this point. We find in the Talmud the idea of a soul and the body being such opposites that the soul every second wants to escape the body. Do you know that? Wants to escape Escape. the body. For the soul, there is nothing more torturous than being ensconced, embedded in the body. It's entirely spiritual, and it's being placed in an environment, it's being harbored in in reality that's antithetical to that. It's entirely material. There's no no overlap between the two. It's it's, it's It's very painful. For the soul, and every second the soul wants to leave, and the Almighty forces the soul to stay. And then we find a tremendous narrative of Moshe at Moshe's, the end of Moshe's life, where the Almighty says, "I want to come take the soul of Moshe." And the soul says, "There's a conversation. We have a recorded dialogue in the midrash, the very last midrash in Midrash Rabbah in Deuteronomy, it talks about Moshe's, Moshe's death. The very last midrash there has this incredible dialogue that the soul has. Moshe's soul has with God." And God tells to Moshe's soul, come here, let me take your soul out of, you, out of the body of Moshe. And I have the greatest place in Tachas Tisei covered under my chair. Like, there's no better place to be. And what does the soul respond? There's no better place I want to be than in the body of Moshe. Moshe had no friction between body and soul. His, his body was so cleansed that it was a preferred destination for his soul. His soul was happy. His soul was content. But it, there were no more boxes. There was no more barriers. His soul wasn't restricted at all. There was nothing in Moshe that was uh, uh, opposing to Moshe's soul. Our soul, poor guy, <laughs> wants to run away. Every time, right? As we speak right now, our soul is suffering. 
And what happens, by the way, when the soul runs away from the body? You know anyone knows? You die, that's right. If you separate your soul and the body, you're dead. So our soul is suicidal. Our soul's suicidal. Well, the soul doesn't die, but it's the soul's part of the body, right? Yeah. Our soul still is. <laughs> the, the soul itself is not suicidal. Yeah, and by the way, we'll say it's that we. It's the other way around. It's murderous. Yeah, well. <laughs> but why don't we just create all souls and not even have a body? That's another good question. What's the purpose of me? Of, 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 these are good questions. We're going to get to all these things. I don't know if we get them all today. No, no, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's it's the it's no it's the it's the direct continuation. It's a natural progression of this discussion. Is okay. So we see this body and soul, and we see how via faith we expose more and more and more of our soul. It can bring us to prophecy. It brings us to Lama Ba. That's what Moshe did at the you know the greatest extent. Um, and by the way, I'll tell you more. I'll tell you more. The the, the Rambam, Maimonides, which is our go-to uh, for all. For everything really about Judaism, uh, who spearheaded essentially the third wave of the oral Torah being written down. We'll get to that. Just a little teaser for future uh, future discussions. Uh, he tells us that there's just three. There's four differences between Moshe's prophecy and every other prophet. Moshe was a prophet. Abraham's a prophet. Isaac, Jacob, lots of lots of prophets we have in Jewish history. Moshe is different than all of them. In four ways. Number one, Moshe has clear and direct instructions, while prophets have interpretable imagery. Right, we we are going to read in this week's parsha. Jacob he leaves Israel and he's going east, and he stops and he goes to sleep and he has a dream and he sees a ladder and he sees the angels. The Torah is time in prophecy. The imagery of the latter is interpreted by the prophet as what, you know, he is able to decipher what God wants. Moshe is not like that. Moshe has clear, clear communicable, direct instructions, like, like what you mentioned, where it talks about Moshe going to the cleft and says, like, God speak to Moshe face to face. Just the way humans communicate, right? Directives, clear directives, number one. Number two, Moshe is awakened by day. He doesn't need to suppress the body, as opposed to everyone else is by night. All other prophets have to be by night in a dream or in a vision. Why? Because their body is still, there's still some influence of the body there. Moshe could be awake, he's by day, you know, no problem. Um, Moshe is also not terrified, there's no friction whatsoever. All the other prophets, it says that they had, they're, they're shaped violently. Why? Because there is resistance. The body resists prophecy, right? Because it, it, it's not, you know, it's 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 like if you were to stick your finger into an outlet when conducting electricity, you start shaking, right? That's what happens to the body with the the physical body with prophecy. All the other prophets had still some sort of slight influence of the body. That wasn't able to handle the prophecy. Starts shaking that violently. Moshe, calm, cool, collected. Why wouldn't it be also fear? Fear that I'm not worthy. Um, why? Why would that? Say I was a prophet and I'm receiving the, the, the vision and all. Would I not fear? Feel some fear and awe that uh, why? Why fear me? Right. That's I'm true. Not really worthy for of seven this. days. Are there not better people out there? But who did? Who is that? Moshe did this for seven days. Did what for seven days? When Hashem appeared to him on his, uh, on to the burning bush and told him, I want to send you to Egypt. He had argued seven days. That's right. Yeah, that's, that, right that's right. That's right. He said he wasn't worthy. That's when he said he wasn't worthy. Yeah. Yeah, why me? yeah but also, I have a... We're way behind that. Way, okay. Yeah, well, I, I also... I, I, I think it's also possible that Moshe's prophecy changed. Yeah. It means Moshe progressed over the over over the ensuing forty years. So maybe maybe Moshe at one point is different than Moshe at a different point. It's still a good question because we see at the beginning of the forty days Moshe is able to go forty days without eating. Beginning of the forty years Moshe goes forty days without eating and drinking. So clearly he's already at that level at that time. Uh, um, 
uh, and lastly is that Moshe is able to co- communicate the guy with whenever he wants. Um, uh, either way, what we see is like this. Well, I want to just recap what we did, to, what we did today uh, because I had intended to speak a lot more. <laughs> uh, well, we have some perfect. I don't need to prepare for next week. No, this is good. But like, like I, I think this is this is enlightening. Like when we talk about faith and 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 what. What we're trying to accomplish, you know, what exactly is? It's not just some box that we're checking, right? It it starts off with that. Then I actually have over here for next week here a little teaser. Uh, for next week, I have the eight levels of faith that we actually mentioned, recapping them. Eight different kinds. When we say faith, it can mean eight different things, at least. Maybe by next week, there might be more. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> this one came to me on the airplane. <laughs> Closer to God. <laughs> Um, so, what's clear is, if if nothing else, we have taken away the fact that that, that faith is not a yes/no equation. It's not something that we achieve uh, at birth, or we achieve when we come bar mitzvah, or we achieve when we uh, register to vote. The first time we say, uh, "Are you an atheist or are you man of faith?" And you give a check by the right. It's optional, right? It's it's much more than that. Clearly, uh, and it's it's about who who we are. What's our reality? What's dominating our world? Is that our body? The time in the world and our body perceptions. Is this table real? Yeah, it's real in a physical sense. Spiritual sense, maybe it isn't real. Maybe it's less real. Spiritually, there's an entire world that we could be oblivious to. And the goal of our progression in faith is where we change that dynamic. Where we suppress the body, we elevate the soul, and we begin the process of chipping away at the barriers of our soul and of those antennas. And while we know we won't end up in prophecy, but it'll end up in greatness. And we see what Moshe did. We, we see how it, how it actually parallels, how what he got out of the experience uh, indeed reflects the fact that his soul was entirely dominant. The body was not at all a factor. He doesn't need to eat or drink. Think about that. He doesn't eat or drink. So yes, we couldn't, we couldn't say, oh, it's just a miracle. There is a way to say that. But uh, more, more simply, all these things go together because they, 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 that's the persona that he was able to achieve. That, that's the reality he was able to achieve. Time travel. How, why, why can we not have time? Because we're limited. We are, our body is... Uh, uh, you know, has rigid dimensions. We exist now here. I don't exist yesterday or in Israel or in Australia. Why not? Why not? Because that's what our body does. Moshe is suddenly, he's suddenly able to transport himself 1,300 years in the future to sit down in the last row of the discussion of Rabbi Akiva and it's doing like that. I advise everyone to read what happened because there's, there's, there's a preamble to this and there's a postscript to this. Uh, that, 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 that if you can find that piece of Talmud, once again, Menachos 38, 39. Sorry, guys, I'm, I'm losing it. 29B. <laughs> well, where you find, you find that narrative. If you can read that story, it's incredible what happens, when exactly it happens. But either way, Moshe is clearly someone that's not, he's not playing by the same rules. He's not playing by the same rules. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a reflection of who he is, right? That gives him these higher levels of prophecy. That gives him the clarity, right? There's nothing obscuring his soul. People can't look at him. You're looking at a soul. You're not looking at a body. You're looking at a soul. What happens? You can't look at it. It's, it's, it's beyond us. You've got to give some sort of artificial mask, artificial barrier. Now, if we were all souls, it wouldn't be a problem. Because our souls can have interface with other souls. Problem is that our bodies trying to look at Moshe, we can't do it, can't handle it. Can't take the heat. Either way, guys, uh, we have what to talk about next week, and we're going to go through the detail uh, of, of, of all these, you know, how do we, what's the most rudimentary faith, and we'll end up with Moshe. And kind of run through the gamut of, uh, of, 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 of these... Uh, uh, of, of the progression that essentially is uh, the, the the markers and the milestones of our growth in our in our in our Judaism, 
And we will begin asking some other questions, some very important questions of, okay, what's about the, why does God have to give us a body? Wouldn't it be simpler if we were all like Moses? Just give us all straight up unsullied souls and what's the problem? We can have prophets, we can have everything. We don't need to eat, we don't need to drink. Well, why don't we start with this world as a precursor to the next world? Just start from the next world, simplify things. Well, what's the purpose of all of this? You describe the, we describe the God that's not limited, not lacking anything. Suddenly he has to create everything. He creates us, creates the world, creates 8.7 million species. Like, what's the point of all it? Just start from the end. Good question. It's a good question. Especially once we see what the end is, what Alamabat results in, well, just start from there. That's a much better place to start, don't you think? So we'll get into that question as well. That can lead us... Next week? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> well, either way, it'll be recorded and... we going to record? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have to uh, So that's that, guys. Core beliefs of Judaism. Uh, we're creating... We're painting a different picture, right? This is not what you, that you learned in the religious school, <laughs> clearly. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, everyone. See you next week.